Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Grams. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,108 of our trek to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we are continuing with our ongoing series of messages that I delivered to Putnam Congregational Church over the last couple of years. This first series of messages will cover the Sermon on the Mount as recorded in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for your life. All right. Thanks, Sue. Thanks for everyone that's willing to help out with the children's message. And if you would like to help out with the children's message, feel free to contact Paula, and she'll make sure you are lined up to do so. So today, we're going to continue on the Sermon on the Mount, a Christian's religion. Are you real? Are you, are you a hypocrite? And when we get to our passage, and I'll read it, and we can read it together, but it'll be pages 1503 and 1504 in the Pew Bible. So if you want to turn to that now and get ready to read. But we are now on our six weeks in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And I pray that you're learning and enjoying as much as I am. Now, I originally intended to complete this Matthew chapter 5 through 7 in eight weeks, but ain't, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> might be 10, might be 11, but we'll see. But we will um, be a little more than eight weeks, but that's okay. Looking back over the past five weeks, we see that Jesus began his instruction on the mount by revealing essential elements of the Christian characters, which was listed in the Beatitudes. Jesus then incorporated those character traits in the metaphors of you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, which is the influences that we can have as Christians that we'll exert on our community if we exhibit the character traits found in the Beatitudes. And then further, the last couple of weeks, we described the Christian's righteousness or right living, which must exceed the right living of the scribes and the Pharisees. And right living is accomplished by accepting the full implications of God's law without dodging or setting any artificial limits or strict list of rules to follow. It's a hard attitude or obedience rather than sacrifice. Christian righteousness is right living unlimited. The teaching must be allowed to penetrate beyond our actions and our words to our hearts, to our minds, and what we'll talk about today, to our motives. It must master us, even in those hidden, secret places of our hearts. So today, as we make the transition from describing our Christian character, our Christian influence, and our Christian righteousness through our good deeds, we learned that we learned about in chapter 5 in those seven lessons the last two weeks. We move on to what is the motive for performing our good deeds. So let's read Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll jump down to verses 16 through 18 and 1503 and 1504 in the Pew Bible. So follow along with me as I read. The first section is given to the needy. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. 
then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now we move on to prayer. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now let's jump down to verses 16 through 18 about fasting. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show the others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting. But only your Father who is unseen, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now just when we're getting a better understanding about what right living is, Jesus knows that we're prone to want to flaunt how wonderful we are. Come on, admit it. I know it's, I fall prey to this all the time. We all have this tendency. Now Jesus gives us a wake-up call. In the NIV, in verse 1, he says, Be careful. Or even stronger in the New Living Translation, where he shouts out, Watch out! Jesus teaches us switching, switches from Christian's moral righteousness to his religious righteousness. He expands the focus on just right living to right living for the right reasons. As citizens of God's kingdom, what is our motive behind our right living or our good deeds? Jesus draws a contrast between obeying the letter of the law through public show or following the spirit of the law through humble and private devotion. He takes the flamboyant religion of the Pharisees first and says, you must not be like the hypocrites in verse 5. And then next week we'll move on to a more in-depth study on prayer. And he talks about the mechanical formalism of the heathen where he says, do not be like them in verse 8. So again, Christians are different from the Pharisees and pagans, the religious and the irreligious. We're to be different from the church and the world. The teachings for Christians do not conform to the world, which is a familiar concept in the New Testament, but through Jesus' instructions to the scribes and the Pharisees, those were the church leaders of his day. We also see that we're not to conform to a set of strict rules and regulations for the sake of just following those rules. Instead, a truly Christian community is distinct, both in life and practice, from the religious establishments of our day. The religion of the Pharisees is the religion compared to the morality of the authentic Christian right living. Our right living is not following a set of rules and regulations. Our right living is not for show or external display. But one thing, but the one thing it's done in secret of our hearts. And I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 again, where it says, Watch out! Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose your reward from your Father in heaven. And as we move on in the teaching, the key phrase, to be admired by others, is what we want to keep in our mind. At first sight, these words may, must in, contradict what we learned in Matthew chapter 5, 16. 
If you remember that, Christ said, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So in both verses, Jesus speaks of doing good works publicly so that they can be seen. In the earlier command, in the earlier verse, he commands that we let our good deeds shine out. But in this one, he prohibits it. So what's, what's going on here? What is Christ trying to teach us? How can this discrepancy be resolved? The contradiction is, not, is, is only verbal. And if we knew the nuances behind what Christ is teaching here, we would realize that it's not substantial. We either, either do or we don't do it. The clue lies in the fact that Jesus is speaking of two different types of sin, actually. The first one is about being a coward not being willing to tell others of Jesus Christ through your good deeds that you do for them. And the second talks about our pride, and that's what we want to focus on today. We need to show our light shining through us from God when we are tempted to hide our light. And that's why Christ told us to show our good deeds. And we're to hide ourselves when we're tempted to show our good deeds as if the light was coming from us. So let me explain. If you remember... I don't know, maybe three weeks ago, I had this light, and it talks about the, being the light of the world, and we are the vessel, and the light is shining from us. So the difference between these two verses are, you're either allowing your light to shine through your good deeds to your Heavenly Father, or through our good deeds, we're allowing the light to shine on us. And that's the difference. Do we let the light shine so others will see our good deeds and praise the Father? Or are we doing it so that our good deeds make us look good and people will praise us? And that's what we're after. And that's the difference between those two verses, the light shining to God or the light shining on us. Our good deeds must be the light that shines on God and not on ourselves. It is so that the glory may be given to God rather than to us. We let our light shine and do, goods for, uh, do good deeds for others, which may be visible to others. Sometimes it's impossible not to show your good deeds to others where they see it. But we are to let our light shine on others so that they'll see the Heavenly Father. And anytime we do good deeds and focus the light on us, then it's an empty religion. When we do our good deed to bring glory to God, then it's right living. And we have three examples today that we're going over, which is giving, prayer, and fasting. It's right living versus religion. In each of these examples, in each of the examples, we're following the exact same pattern. And these three examples appear in every form of religion in the world. All Jews were expected to give to the poor, to pray, and to fast, and all devout Jews followed that practice. Jesus expects us as his disciples to also follow the passage, that, those practices. But Jesus did not begin each paragraph with, if you give, pray, or fast, then this is what you should do. But he began it when you give, pray, and fast, in verses 2, 5, and 16, and he took it for granted that we will do that. He takes for granted that we'll give to the needy, that we'll pray and that we'll fast. And this trio of religious responsibilities expresses to some degree our duty to others, 
our duty to God, and our duty to ourselves. To give to those that are in need is to seek and serve our neighbors. And our neighbors may be locally here. Certainly we should be in tune to those that are in need in our local neighborhood, or it may be around the world. To pray is to seek God's face and to acknowledge our dependence on Him. And to fast, and fasting needs to be looked at as a spiritual discipline that we're restricting on ourselves. And that fasting is intended at least partially as a way to deny our own personal desires and so discipline ourselves through that. Jesus does not question whether his followers will engage in these, these items, but assuming that they will, he teaches them why and how to do it. And the three paragraphs follow an identical pattern. And in vivid and deliberate humorous imagery, Jesus paints a picture of the hypocrite's way of being religious. It's the way of showiness or show off. They receive the rewards that they want, which is the applause of other people. With this, he contrasts the disciples' right living, which is in secret, and the only reward that we'll receive as citizens of God's kingdom, and the only one that we should want, is the blessings of God, who is our Heavenly Father, and he sees our deeds in secret. Now we're going to focus on giving first, and the next two sections are going to be really fairly short. But there's, must be a teaching, there is much teaching in the Old Testament about our compassion to the poor. Generosity is not enough, however. Our Lord is concerned throughout His sermon about the motivation within our hidden thoughts and our hearts. And during the past two weeks, we learned that motivation is just as important as the actual action that we take. So we can't divorce or can't put away the motivation from our actions. In the matter of giving, Jesus has the same concern about our secret thoughts. The question is not, not so much of what the hand is doing when they're giving, but what the heart and the mind is thinking when you're giving. That's why I like the boxes by the doors for our offering. And we haven't decided as a deacon board whether we'll go back to passing the, the plate, but I sort of like the boxes by our doors because it allows us to give more discreetly. And giving online, which I personally like, allows us to give discreetly. We're giving to the Gospel Mission Food Pantry. As Sue said, we don't know who puts those boxes of cereal or other food there. It's a discreet way of giving, and I like that. Because there's three primary motives for when we give to the needy. First, we seek the praise of others. Second, we preserve our Anonymity, that means that we don't show other people, but quietly we're congratulating ourselves because we're giving to the needs of others and we think that's quite special of ourselves. But third, we genuinely care about others in need and we're fulfilling our vocation. Remember what our vocation is? Being the salt to the earth and light of the world. The last one will reflect that we are desirous for the approval of the Divine Father alone. Now we see in these passages the ravenous hunger for praise that the Pharisees showed. And this was the troubling sin of the Pharisees. So insatiable was their appetite for human commendation that it quite spoiled their act of giving. 
Jesus ridicules the way they turned it into a public performance. He pictures the pompous Pharisees on their way to put money into the special boxes at the temple or the synagogue or to take their gifts to the poor. And in front of them, imagine this. And these are million-dollar bills, so if anybody wants one after the service, feel free to have one. <laughs> They're genuine, I, I tell you. But the Pharisees would wave their money around and blow trumpets as they went, had people actually going in front of them, blowing trumpets as they went and say, ah, I give to the poor. I give in the synagogue. Oh, here, you're so needy. I give to you. And that's how they paraded their giving as Pharisees. Did they do it so God would be glorified? To stand with money in one hand and a trumpet in the other is the ultimate form of hypocrisy. I have to be careful with this because Paul will threaten my life if I break it. <laughs> Closest thing we had to a trumpet at home. Hypocrisy is a word that Jesus used to characterize this display. It was the classical Greek word hypocris and was mentioned first as an orator and then an actor. So figuratively, the term came to be applied to anyone who treats the world as a stage on which you play a part. It is someone who lays aside their true identity and assumes a false one. They are no longer themselves, but in a disguise, impersonating somebody else, someone who wears a mask. Now in a theater, there's no harm with the deceit of the actors playing their parts. It's an accepted convention. The audience knows that they have come to a drama, and they're not fooled by it. The trouble is with the religious hypocrites, on the other hand, is that they deliberately set out to deceive people. They put their mask on about how spiritual and religious they were, but they were not acting in a way of pretending so that we see that their mask was their disguise. Their, their, their way to try to fool people into thinking that they were so religious. And yet, they were quite unlike the actors in this respect. They take some religious practice, which is an actual activity, and turn it into what it was never meant to be. Namely, a piece of make-believe, a theatrical display before an audience, and it was done for the applause of men. They wanted to show off. And it's easy for us to poke fun at the Pharisees and say, how foolish could they be to think that they were fooling anyone? But are we not unlike them? We might not employ a troop of trumpeters to blow fanfare every time we give at the church or to a charity. But we, yet, we use the familiar metaphor, we like to blow our own trumpet. And I think we all fall prey to that to a certain extent. It boosts our egos to see our name honored for our good deeds. And even online, on social media, we crave for people to comment on our post and like our post that we put on there. It gives us a sense of satisfaction. And not necessarily is there something wrong or mischievous or hypocritical about that, but let's check our motives. 
because we may not be so unlike the Pharisees. So if, we're so, we, if we are hypocritical, and our motive, which is our motive behind our good deeds, we will receive our recognition that we crave. Jesus teaches us, I tell you the truth. They have received the reward, all the reward that they will ever get. So Jesus now tells us the desired Christian way. It's the way of secrecy. He expresses it, though, in a negative connotation. Because he says, but when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. Now, it uses the right hand because for most of us, we're right-handed. And for a few people, they're left-handed. We had two of our five kids were left-handed. And our grandson's left-handed, he thinks, at least. So he uses that as the illustration of the, of the right hand is our prominent hand, but if we're giving to others, one, it should be done in secret, but to the point where we don't even acknowledge it ourselves. So we hide our left hand because our right hand is all that's needed in order to give that gift. There's no difficulty in grasping this meaning. Not only are we not to tell other people about our Christian giving, there's also a sense that we're not even to tell ourselves about it. Because if we're self-conscious about our giving, sometimes that self-consciousness will readily deteriorate into self-righteousness. And that's one reason, of course, I'm not a real, I can't remember things. I'll put it that way very easily. So for me, the online giving is a blessing because we set our budget at the beginning of every year and it's automatic. I don't have to think about it from that point on. So for me, that helps me not to become self-conscious and self-righteous. So that is what this passage is really drilling down on. So subtle is the sinfulness of the heart that it is possible to take deliberate steps to keep our giving secret from others while simultaneously dwelling on it in our own minds. And then we pat ourselves on the back because we're so wonderful. And the next example Christ gave was praying. And this goes, follows us along the same, and these will be short. In the second example of the religious kind of right living, Jesus depicts two men in prayer. And after the primary difference between hypocrisy and reality, in contrast, the reason for praying and its reward. What he says about the hypocrite sounds okay at first. He says they love to pray, but unfortunately, it is not the prayer that they love or the God that they pray to that they even love. No, they love themselves and the opportunity when pub publicly praying to give themselves a parade. Of course, prayer is good, and we should participate in praying. And all devout Jews prayed three times a day, just like Daniel did. And there's nothing wrong with standing to pray, for that was the usual posture among prayer within the Jews. Nor is it necessarily mistaken a mistake to pray on the street corners or in the synagogues. For if your motive is to break down the segregation of religion that brings the recognition of God from the holy place into the workplace, it's a good thing if we're doing it for the right motives. Jesus uncovered, though, their true motives as they stood in the synagogues and the street corners praying to the heavens that others might see them. And behind their piety 
lurked their pride. What they wanted was the applause of men. And they got it. Christ said they have received their reward in full. So the religious Pharisee is far from dead in our, our days also. How can we pretend to be praising God when in reality we're more concerned about others praising us? And there's a place for public prayer even today, such as when we join as disciples of Christ in community. There's a place for public prayer. However, our worship time only occupies one hour out of 168 hours in each week. So therefore, instead of saving up all your prayer power for public demonstration, Jesus teaches us that we're to go off to the quiet place often, away from the noise and the distractions of life and pray. And we saw Christ giving us the example of this when he went into the mountains or went off into the night and prayed alone. That our prayer that our father, to our Father, who is unseen to us, will reward us. And I'll expand on prayer next week as we cover verses 7 through 15. So let's move on to Christian fasting as our last example. The Pharisees fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. John the Baptist and his disciples fasted often or regularly. But Jesus says, they accused him, why don't your disciples fast? Like we're told to. And Christ at that point said, when the bridegroom is with them, they will not fast. But when the bridegroom is taken from them, they will begin to fast. So Jesus seems to be teaching us about fasting here. And it would appear that he not only expected his followers to fast, but he also gave them instructions on how to do so. And when we think of fasting, we focus primarily about not eating for a set period of time. And especially in our Western cultures, we don't practice or like to, like to go very long without eating at all. Maybe it goes much more on four hours, man. We're famished. We can't handle it. But here in the passage of Scripture is one that's commonly ignored. There's a significant amount of teaching in our churches about daily prayer and sacrificial giving, but very little about fasting. Even in evangelical Christianity in particular, whose characteristics emphasis is on our inward religion of the heart and spirit, it does not readily come to terms with outwardly body practice, bodily practice of fasting. So we want to know really what is fasting here. And strictly speaking, it is a total abstention from eating food. But it could be partial abstention, or it could be full. It could be for a short period of time or a long period of time. Of course, each, each morning we wake up and we eat breakfast, which is a break of our nightly fast. There can be no doubt that fasting can be done in various ways, and it's more about our self-denial than it is the fact that whether we're not eating for a period of time. But I humbly admit that I've not practiced what would be considered biblical fasting in what is most of our minds. And I've really not done enough study on it to drill down on this point thoroughly today. And that might be a topic for another lesson that we'll, we'll look at in the future. The only thing I can equate to fasting, and I don't say this because I want your praise, so don't say anything afterwards or you'll spoil it all. But I do maintain a strict exercise and diet regimen and have for many years. And during that time is a time where I listen to scripture or other devotional materials and the time where I pray. And I use that as my time of 
self-denial, I do it first thing in the morning, so I'm hungry, and I can feel that I'm hungry. And it gives me a sensitivity to God during that period of time. That can be considered a time of fasting. It's a time of self-denial where we're focusing on God and not focusing on ourselves. The passage focuses on our personal sacrificing and dedicating that time to God. We don't have to flaunt it publicly in a manner that's bragging or try to, to appear more spiritual. Now, I want to say also, but accountability to others is a different topic. At times, we do need accountability in all areas of our lives. And as with giving and prayer, if our motive with fasting or sacrificing is to appear holy before others, then it's not correct. But if it's to allow others to glorify God because of our good deeds, then it's appropriate. So we must choose our audience carefully as I wrap up. If we prefer human spectators, we become hypocrites and shall lose our Christian integrity. In the same way, it will happen if we try to become an audience to ourselves, if we're self-congratulatory. So we must choose God for our audience. And as Jesus watched the people putting their gifts into the temple treasury as they went to the temple, so God watches us when we give, when we pray, and when we fast. If we do it secretly, and there's a secret place for us to do it. God hates hypocrisy. He loves for us to be real. When our light shines for the good deeds that we do, he wants it to shine on him and not to shine on us. And that's the whole crux of this passage that we went over today. It's let your good deeds shine. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward. Enjoy your journey and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's word.